0: Welcome to Revolve, where we explore big questions from all angles. Each season, we use one big question to dive into a topic with experts, showing how perspective matters and building thoughtful solutions. I'm Tripp Williams. Season 2 What can we do to mitigate the effect of climate change for those who will be most affected by it? This season, we talk with experts to explore transforming industries like manufacturing and finance into environmental allies and how we support communities impacted by climate change the most. Today, I'm excited to welcome Carla Brulier, the founder and director at the Climate Justice Initiative, the first indigenous climate change organization in the US and the first to be led by a board of indigenous women. The Climate Justice Initiative was formed to address the gap of those left behind and most impacted using the ancestral knowledge of indigenous people most in tune with our ecosystem. CJI invests in Native peoples through multiple different venues through financial, political, social, and environmental programs to help ensure that these people are enabled to be at the heart and center of the process of addressing the changes needed in the world related to climate adaptation. This includes a focus on the disenfranchised, particularly Indigenous women, through self-empowerment models that serve the needs of individuals, groups, and communities. Before founding CJI, Caro was a director at the Climate Reality Project. A consultant to the UN Permanent Forum on on Indigenous Issues, and worked in multiple Alaska organizations advocating for a healthy environment and surrounding communities. Carla, I'm really excited to have you on today. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and chat with you about all of these uh, very dynamic issues.
0: Fantastic. We'll we'll dive right in. The uh, and we're going to be moving at a good clip. So excited to have you with your running shoes on today, because we're going to move. We're going to move fast. (laughs) Uh, So this season, as you know, we're digging into the question of how to slow climate change and support high-quality life on our planet. And this sounds straightforward to many, or it may not, and I want to be sure that we start from the same place and define a key term here so that we're all talking about the same thing. So climate change, when I offer that, that term, It carries different meanings for different people. What does climate change mean to you and your partners?
1: For us, it's more about the shifting of the actual ecological world that's around us and not so much things of like the direct global warming that has the connotation behind it, but it's like everything that's kind of changing. It has like an impact on so many different capacities of our life. It manifests through health, policy, um, the environment, the physical world. Our biology, every single thing in our world is impacted by climate change. So that's the definition that we use since everything is so interconnected for us. But there is, it is very different in a relational level to a lot of different people.
0: Sure. And you, you may have already actually answered my follow-up, but I, I wanted to know from you and from what you've seen, what's the biggest misunderstanding people have about climate change?
1: Yeah, it is a lot about... Well, one, I think the um, the political aspect of it is something that we could probably do a little bit without since it impacts mm. people's livelihoods and it's about people's way of life and it's just basically like trying to exist within this realm of the world. And we do that by being in tune with nature and everything around us and understanding how it's actually changing everything and not necessarily just the 1.5 degrees increase that we're having or two degrees increase that we're having so it's more than that but I think that might be part of like the biggest misconception around it also and the whole global warming thing while it's big it's not all of it it's just kind of a subset of what it is so there's there's a couple of different misunderstandings around climate change but those are kind of the top few
0: yeah and I'm glad you brought that up in our next question I'm excited to dive into a bit of the more on-the-ground work you and, and your group do. I, I agree. I think that the topic is is so abstract to so many people, and so I'm I'm excited to have your perspective here as somebody who's who's worked more tactically with um, at least with thinking about realistic implications for people. So so as I mentioned in the introduction, you broke new ground when you founded the Climate Justice Initiative, again the first indigenous climate advocacy organization. Tell us about your group. What does CJI do and what's your goal and and what inspired you to found it?
1: Yeah, it was more of um, a collective effort of a bunch of Indigenous folks that were realizing the impacts of climate change on not only our communities, but our societies and our groups and individual people, our family structures, everything. So when we started to try to figure out ways to start addressing some of these issues that were kind of individualized, like... Environmental health or different aspects of it, all roads kind of led back to this like human rights, climate change kind of dynamic, and there was no other groups really doing this kind of work right now. So that's what led us to start doing this work, and then created the organization kind of afterwards. So yeah. it kind of just formed. It wasn't so much as like a way that we decided that we had to build an organization because sure. as a group of ind- um, indigenous peoples we just kind of knew that this work had to be done we were in a place to actually do this work and felt morally obligated to actually do this since you know we understand what it's what is needed so that's kind of how it all kind of formed but yeah
0: that's wonderful wonderful and I, I'm, can you share with us a bit more and I, and I, I rattled through some of the different things that that you and team do but tell us a little bit more about what CJI is doing on a day-to-day or month-to-month basis?
1: Yeah, so there is the uh, vision of the organization and then there's the COVID reality of the organization. Mm -hmm. So working (laughs) in actual uh, Native communities has been a little bit more of a challenge as as, uh, we're all from Alaska, so Indigenous of different Arctic communities that are very rural and isolated in a lot of ways. So there's not a lot of um, road systems, and you'd have to like catch a small plane to get to different hospitals, and just there's so many dynamics that are happening during this pandemic, so uh, traveling out to these rural communities isn't really an option right now, so working with individual community members isn't really an option either, so with that, had to shift everything to work remotely, and that comes with a lot of different new challenges that we're facing as well, which is trying to build webinars or online courses, different things like that, but being in these rural communities, internet isn't exactly something that's really um, stable mm-hmm. in a lot of these areas, so it has a lot of different new challenges, or sometimes there's lack of um, electronics that are outside of, like, community centers or schools or different places like that, so COVID's a whole new world that I think we're all navigating in our own ways, but Sure. With that, we've developed a lot of new education models and programs. But in a perfect world, what we would work on is a lot of policy and a lot of education models, communication. And one of the bigger things that we're working on right now is how to redefine new economic models. Mm. Um, and that one I'm really excited about to figure out how we're actually going to start shifting some of this um, dynamic to something that's going to be more empowering to indigenous communities. So it's not that we have all of these indigenous communities that are historically the people that are protectors of the land. And then when the climate change starts to impact the land, these people are unable to respond to it because they're kind of trapped between the indigenous and the Western two worlds where they have to work nine to five kind of jobs and pay for, you know, $10 a gallon of diesel to pay for freezers sort of a thing.
0: Mm.
1: So it's really, really extreme. Um, So with the new economic model, what we're trying to do is create new ways to fund some of these programs to be able to allow Indigenous people to have the creativity and space to do what they've always done.
0: Mm. That's great. And and our next question, actually, we're going to go a bit deeper on that. You've written about the disproportionate burden... Indigenous communities often face when it comes to responding to climate change. And you were just alluding to, to that exactly. Help us understand a little bit more about what Indigenous communities are managing um, and, the, and the disproportionate burden uh, and what created the reality.
1: Yeah, it's kind of different for all of the different uh, areas of the world. Everybody is facing different things. Like, For example, like when you have sea level rise, it's not equal across the world its different levels around different parts of the world. So everyone is facing a different reality. And with indigenous communities, everybody is in a different space. So we have different communities in Alaska, for example, where their entire communities are falling into the ocean. And that's a massive problem because then we have to figure out new ways to readdress some of these issues, move these communities while upholding the cultural value systems at the same time since Indigenous communities are extremely connected to the place, pace of uh, migrations of animals and mm-hmm. the wind and everything, so it's so interconnected, and we can't very well just move a community without considering all of the interconnected dynamics in that. So it, it's a lot of different things with the with the burden. So, for example, we have also another issue where it's um, the permafrost that's melting and with the permafrost melt, there's a lot of different things that come with it because we use those as like pylon sort of things sure. where you can build houses and it's like a permanent concrete, but when they melt, then like the houses tip over or when they mm. start to melt even further than the cellars under the ground that we store all of our food in, you know, all the subsistence food that we live off of year round. Mm -hmm. that becomes full of water and it spoils all the food and that's about 90 percent of the diet of indigenous peoples. so there's not really a a feasible alternative to this
0: sure
1: so it's more of figuring out ways to try to like in part address some of the immediate issues like do these communities then bring in freezers but then how would you run that because it's off the off the grid system sure Um, or different ways like that and it's like ten dollars a gallon that's not reasonable for people that live in rural outskirts communities of the Arctic. So there's so many of these different like deep problems. And the connection between them all is very uh, different between each one of the communities and each one of the problems they're facing.
0: And this and and I'm actually as you're describing that challenge in particular. I'm I'm sitting in in Seattle and I'm picturing a parallel. If if the bedrock that the houses in Seattle was built on started to melt and the stability went away, that's similar to what you're describing with the permafrost melt, is it not? Exactly. That every, everything that's stable just wouldn't be anymore. That's a pretty drastic thing to consider. Um, it is, yeah. Wow. Well, wow. and what about? So so there is the you know the reality of of indigenous people being so close to the solutions when it comes to maybe the scientific solutions as well. And you were even just alluding to some of the realistic sort of mechanics of adjusting and adapting to climate change, moving communities, uh, bringing in new tools, et cetera, that whether or not they're viable is a whole different conversation. But I'm curious, beyond just those realistic responses, when it comes to communities having to move locations or when it comes to ways of life being disrupted what is it that we just as a population what do we risk um, losing if Indigenous communities aren't supported in their climate related work and I'm alluding pretty closely and pretty significantly here too there's a huge cultural component if I'm not mistaken and I'd love to hear about sort of how, how communities are trying to avoid that incredible loss.
1: Yeah it is a pretty significant piece of a lot of the work that needs to be done And I guess I should just preface this with saying that since our organization is one of the first of its kind, we don't necessarily have a roadmap to kind of addressing these issues. Like if anybody had a solution to climate change, we would have started working on this by now. But we're just trying to figure out how to actually address some of these bigger questions by not doing exactly what we've done in the past. So kind of trying to think of like creative new solutions to addressing some of these new issues that we're finding And new problems continuously arise all the time. So, new ways to address these. And figuring out also at the same time using a lot of like the old kind of um, old indigenous knowledge that we've always kind of had in that space at the same time. So, um, we could do different things that would create more um, unity in this. So, for example, we could use things that are more of, I think it would be more of like a Western term of like uh, circular economics. Mm. or something of that nature so uh, it would be more of like a reciprocal kind of a relationship instead of something that continuously um, takes from the environment to create um, unrestricted growth Mm. so something of that nature that we could kind of just shift not only like the collective western cultural mindset of always needing to continuously grow on everything but adapting new ways to think about some of these things. but On top of that, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from some of the indigenous communities. Um, We could look at so many different examples of how all of the indigenous people have uh, maintained these lands, um, upkept them, monitored them, took care of all the animals on them, and now those are some of the most important carbon sinks and spaces in the entire world that are actually saving us from kind of teetering over the edge on a, on a global temperature level.
0: Yeah. And when it comes to the the rootedness of indigenous communities is something that, um, is, is spoken about or brought up with some regularity, probably not enough, but there at least is recognition that indigenous communities have a sense of place, right. And a connection to ancestral lands and maybe just nature in general more than non-Indigenous communities do. And I'm curious if you have an opinion on what, where the break came for people who who aren't Indigenous to an area. What, what is it that led to non-Indigenous populations maybe not being as closely connected to the place and the land?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of theories on that. Um, I think in some ways, a lot of different things have come from um, economic models in one way. And then also like just removing ourselves from the environment as a whole. So if we live in an apartment that's air conditioned and we don't necessarily have to be in relationship with the world, we Mm. have like a degree of separation from it. So we don't actually have to be involved in it. And if you don't see everything that actually happens, then you don't have to be a part of it either. Mm. So, you know, if you aren't part of out there with a, um, you know, fish camp or other things like that, you don't actually have like a in tune, rhythm of the world that's on a continuous basis so when you lose that rhythm or you don't have a connection to it anymore you don't really know the shifts that are happening in the world outside and around you Mm. so right now your your leading
0: indicator is the store shelf as opposed to the actual system where where those things come from yeah 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 Yeah. And, and so can you share with us um an example maybe of a community you've worked with and the sort of challenges they've been facing and what you've been doing with them. I know we're working in a in this abnormal reality um, in the middle of 2020. But I'd love to listeners be able to hear a bit about um, sort of community you've you've worked with. And then at the end of that, you know, tell people how they can support your work.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. So with when you're working with indigenous peoples, um, it's kind of like more of a larger breadth of uh, unique individuals, groups, and communities across um, a large area of land. I mean, Alaska in and of itself is massive. So with that, we usually try to work with um, collectively all groups and communities and individuals. So rather than focusing on one particular tribe and then helping them actually like do something like put in a wind farm, um, which would be amazing work, but we do more of it on an abstract side of creating empowerment for people to be able to make mm. autonomous choices so that they could decide where they want to put their resources, their time, and their efforts, and we support them in that space.
0: Mm.
1: So that looks like a lot of different things. And as you may or may not know, um, there's about um, 5% of the world is comprised of indigenous people, and they protect 80% of the global biodiversity. And so we've created a program that was more of around um, protecting the protectors. So our role is more to be a platform for them and to be a catalyst for change to empower what they choose to do in each one of the individual unique Indigenous communities. As we all have different struggles, different relations and different perspectives, it's more of allowing everybody to have complete autonomy in what they want to do.
0: Sure. Sure. And when it it comes to people who might be interested in learning more or finding a way to support your work, can you point them towards the best place for them to do that?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, There's a couple of different resources that I would love to share. Um, If you want to read a little bit more about what we do, it's on climatejusticeinitiative.org. And if there's other ways to just learn about climate change, the impacts, and especially the impacts it has on Indigenous populations, women, children, land use, all of those different dynamics. I'd also look at um, Drawdown. It's called Project Drawdown, but they have a book and a website, mm. and they're one of my favorite organizations out there.
0: Okay, and we'll put those up in the, um, or include those in notes from the show so people can find it there as well. So earlier you you mentioned uh, or alluded to a topic in our next question. You you I remember you mentioning that we could probably do without the politics that, that often accompanies climate change and climate change conversations. And and I'm curious, as somebody who is who is so connected to the effort uh, working in such a fraught topic area, it can be so difficult to connect with people who come from different parts of the ideological or political spectrum. How do you connect with people who are skeptical about climate change, even as a as a concept, uh, either in the communities you're working with or or people associated with your work in general. Uh, yeah. And, and ha- yeah, we'll start there. It's-
1: it is unfortunate that it's been so uh, politicized in a lot of ways. Um, there's really, at this point, with the science and the data that we have, there's no denying that the world is making a massive shift right now, and we're kind of on the precipice of this shift, and determining how we actually move forward from here is going to have a massive impact on the next generation that comes, or even like when we're in an older generation ourselves mm-hmm. so with that how to communicate that is a little bit more complicated and it usually just depends on who we're talking to but i try to drop some of the words that would politicize this like global warming or climate change or things like that and mm-hmm. i talk about like maybe like the shifting of the biodiversity and ecological change and different things that are actually more uh direct mm-hmm. and impacting people on their day-to-day lives so be it like fish or um, sea ice that's not completely forming any longer, or different dynamics like that, that might be really applicable, but they don't necessarily always associate exactly what would be happening in the world to the political argument that's happening. So as long as we can just separate those things, then I think that's a good way to start approaching some of these issues.
0: That's great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's a really helpful set of su- suggestions to, to make the conversation more productive and less divisive. Um, so I'm curious too, one of the features of your organization, you do have an all, all women board. And I'm curious if that's something that was developed on purpose or, or how it came to be that your organization is led by entirely indigenous women.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was part of a, uh, it was, it wasn't necessarily intentional. It just kind of, it did just kind of form that way. And I, absolutely love the formation of our organization and historically a lot of our groups are more matriarchal by nature so it just kind of makes sense that um, all of the women in these spaces know that we are having like a shift in the world and that like the women are the ones that take care of all of the communities and the families and you know if we have a lot of healthy families and we have good communities and it's just so interconnected so it just kind of made sense that this is how it naturally happened for our organization.
0: Sure, and, and if I I'd love to know, generally speaking, what are some of the the things you notice most differently, just in how things operate in in the sort of matriarch focused versus patriarch focused? Are there things that you've, having worked in, in maybe both both contexts, the 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 biggest shifts or the things that are most noticeable to you, that we could all learn from?
1: Yeah, I mean, what I do know is what we have been doing so far isn't working. This process in this system that we're in right now is not going to continue to support the style of life that we are in right now. So, it's going to take a different style of thinking and a completely different framing of how we actually approach some of these issues to be able to start solving some of these biggest, some of the, some of the biggest complex issues in our world and our lifetime right now. So, with that, I am very, very happy to have people that are uh, dynamic multifaceted thinkers that aren't stuck in the linear way of viewing this. So we'll see yeah. how it kind of shifts moving forward, but that's where we are today. Yeah. But being COVID, everything is really
0: more complicated. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. We're coming up towards the end and I have I have one extra question that I'd I'd love to to get. This is a little bit of a of a responding to current news that I'd love to get your perspective on, the Pebble Mine Project. So when it comes to a project like that, where there's such a clear trade-off between potential economic growth and um, a really significant uh, detrimental impact to the environment, I'm curious how, how you frame that, that trade-off and even, and even your thoughts on the topic.
1: Yeah, that one is very, very clear-cut, I think, for all Indigenous peoples. Everybody is adamantly against Pebble Mine in any capacity. It's not that there is any space where anybody's like, yeah, this is going to be five, ten years of work, and we destroy the largest fishery in North America, and then that's okay. This is more of thinking about like a longer-term impact of how we are going to survive as peoples moving forward. Are we gonna to continue to like trade off everything that is valuable? And it's kind of in the same parallel as the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, except they're kind of different. So the money isn't gonna actually go to the native communities or the native peoples. It's gonna be going out to different places across the globe. So there's not a real trade off other than just having a couple of years of a job for some people. So it really shouldn't be as much of a conversation as it even is except for the fact that it's a potentially a very really large income for some of the federal governments and they've been fighting for this for so long so i understand why in covid times um, since we are kind of dealing with an economic recession right now why people would want to push for things like this uh, if you have an economic recession and the way that we have our current model set up we use all of our environmental capital and then turn that into uh, money, like cash resources. Sure. And so that's kind of what we do. And if we give up all the like last strongholds we have of any kind of things, like the fisheries or the, the wildlife refuge, if we give those up, then, then there will be nothing left of any of these communities. And it's more than just like the, the fish that would be lost. And same with um, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So it's more than just the caribou that'll be lost. It's the people that are there that live on this. It's the subsistence that they live on. it's their life. it's their complete existence. So it would be just the music that's lost, the art, the languages, it's everything that would be lost with us too. So there's a lot more to consider than just like a couple of paychecks. but
0: yeah, and it's it's such an interesting. Yeah, it, it, we could probably devote an entire season to the topic, and maybe we will. But um, <laughs> but I it's it, there's there's an extra wrinkle in the fact that if I'm not mistaken, the actual company, the mining company, is a Canadian company, which is a, a curiosity to the story. Yeah. Um, and then I, I feel as if I've that I've have seen it, that there are a few native communities that have at least. Sensibly voiced support for the benefits that could be derived from it and um it's just such a tricky it's a it's a really well I I to, I agree with you I don't think that the trade-off is worth it it's interesting to have um so many different voices that that don't always seem to fall on the same side of the argument come together
1: it is interesting. Yeah. And if you dive any bit more into this, you can see that some of them are um, more of Alaska Native corporations, which aren't sure. necessarily encompassing Alaska Native voices. Sure. So that's part of like the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and not necessarily like tribal people as sure. it's a corporation. So there's a lot. It's so complicated. But um, on that, there is another book that I just would love to recommend. That's called 50 Miles from Tomorrow by Hensley. Mm. And that book is fantastic about diving into the corporations, and that might help figure out kind of how this is so complicated and why there's so many players in this.
0: Sure. That's wonderful. And I'll include that in the note as well. That would be a great, great resource for the audience to have access to. We jumped into the deep end on that one. I'm going to end end our conversation on a positive note. I'd love to hear from you. Give us one reason why we should be hopeful in our effort to slow climate change.
1: Uh, Yeah, that one's always a really good question, though. And I think that there's a lot to be hopeful for. Uh, I personally don't think that we can start saving every single community that's being affected by climate change. But if we act now, we can actually start addressing some of the issues of some of the most marginalized communities and some of the people that are most impacted, which are typically like indigenous or black-brown communities in different geographical areas around the world. So if we do this now, then there's just so much richness of the world that we could save and I think that's a really genuinely beautiful thing
0: that's fantastic this has been a, a incredibly rich conversation and I again I'm so excited to to be able to have your voice in this season uh I, I really really admire the work you and your team are doing and I'm excited to see what you do going forward and uh, and thanks again for coming on and joining the show
1: yeah like I like it was a pleasure
0: Thanks for listening. Check the show notes for links and information mentioned in the episode. And explore the other episodes in this season to learn more on this topic. Before we go, subscribe to our show to get new episodes as soon as they come online. And please rate us on whatever podcast app you use. That helps other people discover the show as well. We'd be excited to hear from you. Send us a mail at revolvepodcast at gmail.com.